0: Turn my world Evidence and Answers <laughs> President of Iran Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has made his intentions to destroy Israel very clear. Not only is he seeking nuclear weapons, but he's also gathering a coalition of nations to launch a massive attack on Israel. One important biblical prophecy predicts a large Islamic coalition that will arise against Israel and mentions Iran as one of the key nations in this coalition. What other countries will be in this coalition? Will Israel survive? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we're going to listen to Pat's guest, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, who recently presented a message at the 2012 Hawaii Apologetics Conference entitled, The Coming Middle East War. Let's join Dr. Hitchcock now as he presents part two of his message entitled, The Coming Middle East War.
1: There's only two times in Israel's future when we know they're going to be at peace and at rest and living securely. One of those times is during the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. And we know this invasion is not going to occur then because there's going to be peace. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is going to be ruling. The only other time we know of in Israel's future when they're going to be at peace and at rest, living securely, is when they're living under that, that seven-year peace treaty with the Antichrist that's spoken of in Daniel 9.27. Now, the Antichrist is going to break it, you remember, at the midpoint. But during those first three and a half years, Israel's going to be living at peace. So that's when I see that this is going to take place. They're going to be living under that treaty with the Antichrist. Now, if you'll uh, put the other chart up here that I had or the other uh, graphic I had. This is a great chart. I didn't make it. That's why I can say that. Now, uh, this is from a really good book called Charting the End Times by Tim LaHaye and Tommy Ice. Now, I've made a few changes to it to, to reflect some things I wanted to put in it. But I want you to notice some things. Over on the left side there, you'll notice that's where we are today, and we're in the time of the current church age. We're in the time of the preparation for the fulfillment of prophecy. One of these days, the rapture of the church is going to take place. And we're going to be out of here, and I think Daryl's going to talk about that tomorrow, about some of the different views of the rapture. And the view that I hold, I know he holds as well, is the pre-trib view. The rapture is going to happen before the tribulation. But notice, and this is very important, when the rapture takes place, the tribulation doesn't necessarily start at that point in time. A lot of people have this idea that the rapture takes place and the seven-year tribulation starts immediately. The rapture doesn't start the seven-year tribulation. The rapture ends the church age. So the church age could end tonight with the coming of Christ to take His bride to heaven. Remember, the Spirit came suddenly and the church was founded on the day of Pentecost. You know, suddenly as the Spirit came, it's going to end one of these days suddenly as the Spirit indwelling the body of Christ is taken out of the earth. But there's going to be a time after the rapture that I call a time of further preparation more stage setting will take place. Then at some point after that, the Antichrist will make the seven-year treaty with Israel, and that's when the seven-year tribulation starts. Now, we don't know how long it'll be between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. It could be a week, it could be a month, it could be a year, it could be five years. We don't know. But I don't think it's going to be decades, because one of the purposes of the rapture is to deliver us from the wrath of the tribulation. If the tribulation's too far away, then we wouldn't need to be raptured uh, out of it. So I don't know how long the time will be, but there's going to be a time of further preparation when these 10 kings and the Antichrist are going to rise, uh, the group of 10, uh, as I call them. And during then that first three and a half years of the tribulation, that's where I put the battle of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And if I'm right about that, Then one of the things that will happen is, think about this, if Israel is invaded by Russia, by Iran, by Sudan, by Turkey, by all these different nations, by Libya, and their armies are wiped out in Israel, as we're going to see in this passage, that's going to create a huge power vacuum. Have you ever wondered how is it the Antichrist at the midpoint of the tribulation comes on the scene, and he's able at that point to dominate the world, declare himself to be God? Could it be that it's this Gog, Magog invasion of Israel and the wiping out of these enemies that allows the Antichrist in and creates this power vacuum that allows him to come on the scene and begin to dominate the world? So to me, it fits together. These things do when we see it in this way. So we've seen the who now. We've seen the the when. The third key question is why or the purpose of this invasion. Why are they going to invade Israel? Notice verse 12. They're going to come to capture spoil and seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who've acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. And then it says, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, Have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? This is interesting because notice the nations on the sidelines here that aren't involved in the invasion are Sheba and Dedan. If you look at that on a modern map, Sheba and Dedan are the Arabian Peninsula, which is Saudi Arabia and a lot of the more moderate Gulf states today that are opposed to nations like Iran. And we'll talk tomorrow about the young lions of Tarshish here. Some people think that's a reference to the United States, but we'll talk about that in the message I have tomorrow about the United States and prophecy. But again, even the mention of these nations that are on the sidelines fits what we see today. But notice these nations come to capture spoil. Now, we don't know what that means. You know, it could be that by the time this invasion takes place, all these other nations in the Middle East have pumped all their oil dry. Maybe there's going to be some more large fines in Israel as we've seen in the past uh, here recently, and and maybe Israel will be the only one left with any oil. We don't know. They're going to come to, to take some kind of great spoil. They're also going to come to crush Israel, Notice verse 9, you will go up, you'll come like a storm, you'll be like a cloud covering the land. They're going to come like a cloud and a storm to try to wipe out the Jewish people. But another reason I think these nations are going to come against Israel, again, if, if I'm correct in putting this in the first half of the tribulation, remember during that time Israel is going to be living under a peace treaty with the Antichrist. And these nations may invade Israel because an attack against Israel would also be an attack against the Antichrist, against the nations of the West. So it may be that the invasion of Israel is a challenge to the Antichrist as well. So they're gonna come to to crush the Jewish people, to capture spoil, but also part of it may be direct challenge as well against the Antichrist. Now the fourth question I wanna look at here briefly is what's gonna happen? Notice down in verse 17, "'Thus says the Lord God, "'Are you the one of whom I spoke in former days "'through my servants, the prophets of Israel, "'who prophesied in those days for many years "'I'd bring you against them? "'It will come about in that day "'when God comes against the land of Israel, "'declares the Lord God, "'my fury will mount up in my anger "'and in my zeal and in my blazing wrath. "'I declare that on that day "'there will be a great earthquake "'in the land of Israel.'" By the way, people that are just all into positive thinking and, you know, the Bible never talks about anything negative. You can't read much of the book of Ezekiel and take that view. This is pretty negative right here, isn't it? But God's angry and He's furious with what's taking place. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, the creeping things that creep on the earth, all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountain will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse. Every wall will fall to the ground. I'll call for a sword against him on my mountains, declares the Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. It's going to be a bunch of infighting, the worst case of death by friendly fire in history. There'll be pestilence and blood. God's going to send plagues. And he says... There's going to be torrential rain and hail and fire and brimstone coming down from heaven. So God is going to wipe out these invaders. They're going to die and perish there, it says, in the mountains of Israel. By the way, down in chapter 39, verse 4, it says, You will fall on the mountains of Israel. Did you know that the mountains of Israel only became a part of modern Israel in 1967? So this is another piece of the prophetic puzzle that's in place as these nations invade. Now, as we scan the horizon today, we can see that the stage for this invasion is set. The only question remaining is, how do these events fit into what we see in Ezekiel 38? So I want to look at this last question, the how question. How are events today preparing the way or developing for this war? Now, I want to be brief in this tonight. We could go into all kinds of detail and current events, but let me just mention a few things. First of all, when we look at Russia, Russia is reasserting itself. The Russian bear has come out of hibernation with a vengeance. The most dangerous kind of bear in the world is not a black bear. Um, It's not a grizzly bear. It's certainly not a Chicago bear. We all know that. But it's a mother bear who's been robbed of her cubs. And that's what happened with the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union fell apart, men like Putin, who's going to be elected, no doubt, to the presidency here, coming up here very soon. And he's already served eight years, and according to their constitution, he had to take four off. And really a puppet uh, was placed in, uh, there in Medvedev in his place. He's going to be re-elected again. But he wants to see the old glory days of the Soviet Union restored. He wants to recreate the Soviet Union. He recently suggested the creation of a Eurasian Union. I mean, he's the new czar of Russia. And Russia, just last week, warned Israel not to strike Iran. Uh, Russia is selling uh, all kinds of nuclear technology and nuclear fuel to Iran. They have sold them nuclear reactors. Um, Russia has recently signed 17 agreements with Turkey. So you can see the nations here developing alliances with one another. Russia is reasserting themselves greatly. They're arming Syria right now, the, the Syrian government, against the people there that are rising up against them. You know, Turkey's mentioned here in, in Ezekiel 38. And when people used to look at this Gog coalition in the past, Turkey was kind of the fly in the ointment. Because Turkey was the friendliest Muslim uh, nation. They were an ally of Israel, and they were trying to get into the uh, European Union. But all of that has changed dramatically in the last couple of years. Many experts believe that 90 years after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, we could be witnessing the emergence of a revived Ottoman Empire. Did you know over the last couple of years, that Turkey's economy is the second fastest growing economy in the world? It's white hot. Politically, Turkey is being looked to by other Muslim nations as a model. Turkey gave the Libyan rebels $100 million during the recent uprisings there in Libya. They've deepened their ties with Iran. They've taken a hard turn to the east. The Turkish President Erdogan is pushing forcefully to be viewed not merely as a leader in the Muslim world, but the leader. And recent signs there point toward Ezekiel 38. This is interesting to me, when Erdogan, the, co- the current prime minister of Turkey, was the mayor of Istanbul, this is what he said, democracy is like a streetcar, you ride it until you get to your destination and then you get off. So you kind of use democracy as long as you need it and then you get off and do what really needs to be done. And he clearly wants to return to the days when Turkey was a militantly Muslim regional superpower. And that really fits in with what we see here in Ezekiel 38. Erdogan has called Gaza a prison camp. He denies that Hamas is a terrorist organization. Uh, A while back, they expelled the Israeli ambassador and severed all military ties with Israel. There's a surging anti-Semitism there. I've got a a friend of mine. He's the only seminary-trained pastor in Turkey. And he tells me of a growing anti-Semitism there. In fact, the Weekly Standard about a year ago said the number one selling book in Istanbul was Mein Kampf by Hitler. It's an amazing thing. I I wouldn't have believed it if it didn't come from such a reputable source. Then you see Sudan mentioned here as well. Ancient Kush, a radical Islamic nation. They harbored Osama bin Laden in the late 90s. But did you know uh, just last summer Sudan split into two nations? There's now northern Sudan and southern Sudan. The northern part that's radically Islamic now is separated from the southern part. Southern Sudan, which is mostly Christian, became Africa's 54th nation last summer. So the division of the nation into the Islamic north and the mostly Christian south makes it now easier for the Islamic north to now act on their own and join a coalition like this. Libya, of course, has been all in the news, and, and Kirby just talked about them a few moments ago, but after 42 years of dictatorship and six months of revolution, the regime of Colonel Muammar Gaddafi finally fell. But there's a lot of fear there now about what's going to happen. Some say that Libya could become the Somalia on the Mediterranean, uh, one of the main fighters and leaders in the anti gaddafi forces fought alongside al-Qaeda in the dying days of the Taliban regime. So it's really uncertain who's going to take over there. There's a fear of an ultimate Islamist takeover. Of course, another nation mentioned here is Iran. Don't even really have to say much about them tonight. I mean, they're the most dangerous nation in the world, especially for Israel and the United States. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is the new Hitler. It's interesting, Ahmadinejad denies the Holocaust, yet he wants to repeat it. I mean, what an irony that is. I mean, you've heard all of the statements he's made about wanting to destroy the nation of Israel. Iran has been really excited about this Arab Spring and the fall of all these dictatorships, but they're not very excited now when it's happening in Syria because Syria is one of their client states that they're supporting. In fact, I read they've given Syria a billion dollars to try to to prop up the Assad regime there. Of course, the biggest concern with Iran is the fact that they're trying to cross the nuclear finish line. And you read all kinds of things about where they're at in the process. But I've read about every article that's come out about Iran by a lot of experts. And several of them now are saying about the same thing. And what they're saying is they're about whenever they decide to make a nuclear weapon, and there's still some concern of whether they have really decided that or not, but it'll take about nine months for them to get the nuclear material to build a bomb and about six months to assemble it. So there's certainly evidence that they're trying to get nuclear weapons, but there's growing evidence that they're working on a nuclear missile as well. And all the experts say that 2012 is the key year for all of this. Now, this is all happening to a nation that believes the end is near and that they're responsible to bring it in. You know about their Mahdi theology. I mean, they believe the hidden Imam's going to come back, and he's going to come back in a time of great chaos on the earth. And he's going to bring peace. And, of course, they think it's their job to put out the welcome mat for him. Ahmadinejad sees himself like the John the Baptist, if you will, for the Mahdi. The one who is a forerunner who's going to prepare the way for him. Like what Joel Rosenberg calls Iran and the Mullah regime there. He calls them an apocalyptic genocidal death cult. That's pretty descriptive language, isn't it? An apocalyptic genocidal death cult. And they're threatening, of course, to close the Strait of Hormuz that 20% of the oil goes through uh, every day. And, of course, as we look at all this, the one nagging question that's out there is, what is Israel going to do? Ehud Barak, who's their defense minister, has said that there's a very short time now, a window called the immunity zone when Israel can go over there and really do meaningful damage to their nuclear program. Once it reaches a certain point of no return, then things are going to be so deep underground and so fortified that the only one who will be able to do anything about it at that point really is the United States. But here's Israel's problem is, if they don't act in this time in this immunity zone, and they let that period of time pass, then their ultimate security is going to be left in the hands of the United States. And I don't think they trust Barack Obama that he's going to do what needs to be done. So this is the problem that they face. How much longer can Israel wait? And if Israel were to take out the Iranian nuclear megaplex in the near future, which could require precision nuclear strikes, this would plant seeds of a hatred against Iran, against Israel and Iran, so much so that it could precipitate the Gog invasion in the very near future. Muslim nations could begin to plot this all-out attack as a final payback against Israel for what they've done. And it could even be the hooks and the jaws that brings Russia down into all of this. General Jerry Boykin, a uh, retired three-star general, former undersecretary of defense, he said this recently. If Israel were to strike Iran, you would see it accelerate the relationship between Russia and Iran. I think Russia would then come to the aid of the Iranians and I think you would see that relationship solidify with increased military cooperation and military support. The sale of additional military equipment and even military advice. And that sets the stage for ultimately what is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I think we can all see the stage is set for the Middle East war prophesied in Ezekiel 38. It looks like the time could be drawing near. Israel is regathered to their nation. They're there. There's an outcry for peace in the Middle East. And of course, Antichrist has to come and make that peace treaty with Israel for the tribulation to start and for Israel to be living in peace and security. And of course, the whole world is clamoring for some kind of peace in the Middle East. Also, all the nations of Ezekiel 38 are identifiable nations today with the will and the desire to attack Israel, and they're forming alliances with one another. So we can see how the stage is being set. Let me just mention two things as we close tonight of just kind of lessons or some application for us. And the first one would be this. We need to look at this prophecy tonight, and it needs to give us encouragement that God is in control. You say, well, man, I don't see anything very encouraging about this tonight. Well, let me tell you this. I'll tell you what would really be discouraging. What would be discouraging is if events in our world today were unfolding in a way not consistent with the Bible. That'd be scary. Because then you'd get the idea there's nobody driving the bus. I mean, we're wandering down the mountain road, and you look up here at their front, and there's no driver there. To me, it's comforting to see that events are unfolding in our world today exactly as we should expect them to be unfolding according to Bible prophecy. It tells us God's in control. My favorite word in Bible prophecy is the word pantocrator. It's a word about God. If you read the book of Revelation, you'll see it in there eight times in the book of Revelation. Pantocrator, and it's a Greek word made up of two words. Krator means to hold or to have in your hands, and pantos means everything. And when you see the word in the book of Revelation, He's the Lord God Almighty. The word Almighty literally means that God has His hands on everything. He's got everything in His hands. And to me, that's one of the great comforts that Bible prophecy teaches us. I heard a story uh, a while back about a man who was learning to fly a single-engine airplane. It was time to do the landing phase of his instruction. And the the instructor said, well, are you ready to go down now? And he said, man, let's do it. So they began to descend, and the instructor looked at the young man. He was as cool and calm as can be. He'd never seen anything like it. Guy was not nervous at all. He says, man, this guy's going to make a great pilot. Well, the plane descended and suddenly it hit the ground with a thud and bounced about 50 feet in the air and hit it again and bounced and bounced and finally stopped. And the instructor said, said, he said, son, I've been doing this a long time and I believe that's the worst landing ever by a student pilot. And the guy said, me? He says, I thought you were landing the plane. (laughs) Well, a lot of times that's the way it looks in this crazy world we live in, doesn't it? We wonder if God's really in control. We wonder if anybody's flying the plane. But we can be assured, of course, from other places in the Bible, but especially from Bible prophecy, we can be assured that God is in control, no matter what is happening, or no matter what we may think. And to me, one of the comforting things about this is, look, if God is in control of the movements of nations, and these great geopolitical events, then we can leave here tonight knowing that God is in control of our lives as well. You know... We often wonder, God, can you really control these things? Look at our petty little lives and little, you know, the problems that we have. Sure, they're big to us. But you look at that compared to the things that God is doing on a global scale and a geopolitical scale. Certainly God can take care of whatever problems and struggles and difficulties we have here tonight if we'll trust Him. And the second thing is, I just say, is look, the rapture could happen at any time. We see these events being set up, but the rapture could happen in any moment of time. Nobody knows the time of the rapture, but it could occur at any time, and we need to be ready. We can see the foreshadows today of what's going to happen in the future, but the rapture is what we call an imminent event. It's an event that, from the human perspective, could occur at any point in time. And we need to recognize that only God knows the time, and that Christ can come at any time, so we need to be ready all the time. That's the message of Bible prophecy for you and for me. And of course, the ultimate way to be ready is to make sure you have your faith and your hope in Christ. Now, I would assume that on a Friday evening like this, anybody who would come out here and sit through several hours of what we've been doing here tonight probably knows Christ as their Savior. But I don't know everyone here personally, and I never want to take that for granted. Somebody may have brought you with them. You may not know the Savior. Don't leave here tonight without taking Christ to be your savior from sin my favorite verse in the bible second corinthians 521 it says god made him that is jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of god in him god took all my sin and he put it on jesus whenever i trust in jesus christ god takes away all of my sin and he credits my bank account in heaven with the very righteousness of jesus christ That is the greatest transaction that any person could ever imagine, and that's what can happen to you tonight if you'll just simply take Jesus Christ as your Savior and receive that pardon that He purchased for you uh, when He died on the cross. Let's bow for prayer, and if you've never trusted in Him, I pray that you'll do that. And uh, for those of us who know the Lord, may God help us to be ready, be thinking of what are the things in my life that I need to be doing and changing? And what are the things I need to, to be focused on in my own life to be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ?
0: This concludes Dr. Mark Hitchcock's study on the coming Middle East War. If you missed any part of this message, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to this study and enjoy other great resources on the site. Also, the entire series from the 2012 Hawaii Apologetics Conference featuring Dr. Mark Hitchcock, Kirby Anderson, and other fine teachers is also available right there on the site. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by the teaching of Pat's guests, like Dr. Mark Hitchcock, please support Pat in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. I hope you'll be with us next week as Pat and his friends continue to present more reasons for faith and hope right here on Evidence and Answers.